So I'm Monica Lebrow. Um, I've attended All Souls for about two years now. Okay, I'm going to start with a short vid video about mothers. Give me one second. Sure. Sorry. Uh huh. Two minutes. Hi. Good afternoon. Sorry about this. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Have you ever done one of these interviews uh, over the camera before? Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about the job to get started with. It's not just uh, a job, it's sort of probably the most important job. Uh, the title that we have going right now is Director of Operations, but it's really kind of so much more than that. Responsibilities and requirements are, are really quite extensive. Uh, first category for the requirements would be mobility. This job requires that you must be able to work standing up most or really all of the time, uh, constantly on your feet, constantly bending over, constantly exerting yourself, a high level of stamina. Uh, uh, okay. That's a lot. For how many, like, for how many hours? Uh, 135 hours to unlimited hours a week. It's basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm sure you'll have a chance from time to time to maybe just sit down here and there, yeah. Uh, you mean like a break? Yeah. Uh, no, there are no breaks available. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that even legal? Oh, yeah, of course. So, like, no lunch? You can have lunch, but only when the associate is done eating their lunch. <laughs> uh, I think that's a little intense. No. Not that's crazy. Now, this position requires excellent negotiation and interpersonal skill. We're really looking for someone that might have a degree in uh, medicine, in finance, and the culinary arts. You must be <laughs> constant attention. Sometimes they have to stay up with an associate throughout the night. Being able to work in a chaotic environment. If you had a life, we'd ask you to sort of give that life up. No vacation. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and holidays, the workload is going to go up, and we demand that. With, with a happy disposition. Uh, that's almost cruel. <laughs>
so I know we're not quite we're not quite there yet at Mother's Day, but um, this is a little reminder of how impactful mothers are in our lives. And both Saint Monica and Mary Sumner um, had that in spades. Um, in addition, that faith that they brought to their family, that uh, unrelenting and continuous improvement that they brought um, in prayer, in um, never giving up um, on their children and um, being faithful to God. Um, so I'd like to um, just read out the litany and if you could respond, um, I would appreciate that. For Monica and Mary Sumner, and for all who nurture faith in the home and family. Uh, for Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory, and Jerome, and for all who contend for the truth of the gospel. Um, so, as I said, I'm Monica Lebrow. Um, I grew up in a Catholic family, uh, lots of siblings on a farm here in Illinois. Um, it's was a very uh, idyllic setting, um, but um, there was a lot of similarities between me and my namesake, St. Monica. Um, both of these women I found to be enduring faithfulness and perseverance. They were the mothers to evangelists and international Christian women's missions. Um, they're prayer-focused leaders who led by example. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Mary Sumner. Um, she had um, her beginnings in 1828 near Manchester, England. Um, her name is Mary Haywood. And she did have a lot of uh, religious um, training and access to a very good education, although she was middle class. Um, in that Victorian time period, um, she didn't really engage in the suffragette movement um, that was very widespread throughout England. She more remained neutral and took pride in the role that she was given as a mother and a woman of faith. Um, in 1951, um, I'm sorry, in 1848, she married um, her husband George, who was also um, a, a priest in the Anglican faith, and um, they met in Rome where she was um, educated. Um, they had two baby girls and then moved to Winchester, um, a birth of a baby boy a few years later. Um, really, George was on the forefront of the community in Winchester. Um, as he was at the pulpit, he served as a deacon um, and then later a bishop of Guilford um, in the church. Um, he was also assigned a suffragian post in the Diocese of Winchester. So although they weren't um, 
actively protesting as part of the suffragette movement, um, they did have um, kind of a foot in both worlds in advancing uh, the cause of women in, in um, England. They lived in the, the rectory, which is on the left. Um, it's small, humble beginnings. And that's where the first meeting of the women's union took place. Um, Mary Turner was, I'm sorry, Mary Sumner was not a natural speaker. Much like me, she got nervous, <laughs> um, stumbled through her speeches. But she didn't come to be the leader of this movement until much later in her life. She was already a grandmother. Oops, going the other way. So what inspired her to start the Mother's <clears throat> Union was really witnessing her eldest daughter struggle with motherhood and parenting. In that time period, there was a big division of the classes. So the very um, upper crust the, had servants in their home, and they were very disconnected from their children. Um, the servants sometimes had a better connection with the child in their rearing um, than the parents did. Um, and then uh, later in the uh, 19th century, they um, sent their children off to uh, boarding school. So even more disconnect. And Mary saw this and she wanted to give instruction to her community, um, not just about faith, but how to rebuild that connection. Um, and she drew, drew on all the classes because a lot of the working class were more in tune and had a better how-to guidebook than the upper crust at that time period. Plus the industrialization of um, England um, was occurring at that time. So um, about 10% of the population were below poverty line, didn't have enough to eat, didn't have enough uh, resources. And then another 10 to 20% were just above that and they had, they were the working poor. They had a job, but if they got ill or they got fired, they're most likely not going to have enough to eat and resources for their family. So she was um, pulling from those middle, upper, and lower class and giving them a cause, um, giving them purpose. Beyond um, mothering, it was faith and prayer in the home. So at this first meeting in the rectory, she was so nervous that she couldn't speak. Her husband, George, um, got up and spoke. But by the second meeting in the rectory, she was able to overcome that and speak to the women in her community. And they met for about a year. And then in, um, I think it was 1887, uh, um, they had the first meeting of the mothers. She addressed, 
I'm sorry, hold on. 1885, she addressed the National Church Congregation. And the two main things that she spoke about were being a good example for children and keeping prayer central to the life in the family. Um, because she didn't um, focus on doing good works for the poor, uh, because she mostly focused on family and how-to in motherhood, it was hugely well-received. The um, Bishop of Winchester, Harold Brown, um, wound up commending her and then saying, this is the pattern across the nation that I would like families to use um, to build healthy Christian values in the family. Um, again, it spread like wildfire across Great Britain. And this was also the height of the British Commonwealth Empire. So it not only diversified to um, numerous different countries, within a year from that speech, she had 1,069,000 6, new members. And that was in, um, you know, like four different countries at that time. So it got a lot of synergy because she gave the mission to other mothers. They were mentoring each other in their community. And um, it was also well-received because it was not conceived as a vehicle for the wealthy to give to the poor. It was more education, it was more family matters, um, and they united in prayer to seek the example that they wanted for their families. So a year after that, in 1896, the Mother's Union moved from being a network of parishes and religious dioceses um, to a centralized uh, organization. And Queen Victoria, in 1897, became the patron of the Mother's Union. Um, and it's to this day, uh, Queen Elizabeth is the patron of the Mother's Union. And internationally, again, it grew and grew and grew. Um, when you come alongside people that don't have um, a rule book, a guide, don't even have a Bible in some cases, right? And say, let me help you. Let me uh, inspire faith. Um, it again gave cause to, gave a mission to all the classes in all of those countries. Um, to date, the Mother's Union has more than four million members in 83 countries around the world. Um, this is a quote from Mary Sumner in 1885. Motherhood is one of the greatest and most important professions in the world, and yet no profession which has, has such poor training for its supreme duties. So that impact that we saw in the video um, is again tied in. Um, the formation of how you think, um, the, um, 
even your relationship with God is started as, as a small child, taking this selfish, I want it now, human being, and um, bringing them outside of themselves, um, bringing them to faith and prayer and reflection and a valuable member of the community. So this is uh, Mary's personal prayer. Um, and again, I think a lot of us have prayed something similar to this. <laughs> if you want to say it with me aloud, all this day, O Lord, let me touch as many lives as possible for thee. And ever life I touch, do thou by thy spirit quicken, whether through the word I speak, the prayer I breathe, or the life I live. Amen. So a couple other things that I gathered from Mary's writings and her sermons, at, I guess there weren't sermons, her presentations at that time period, um, was nothing brings you faster to the Almighty than the children. <laughs> Those, those mundane and glorious tasks that parenting has you doing, have you calling aloud, oh Lord, give me strength. And she sought parental guidance and wisdom in scripture. She um, used prayer to create patience and um, reflection in this community. Um, she requested the Lord's protection over her family and forgiveness for our sinful and selfish ways. So those daily reminders and practices that she started in, in a microcosm, the family union, um, again, just caught on again and again and again in all the different countries. Um, she really strove to quicken a mother's heart in that holy mission of connecting with the community, with family, and that sacrifice that needs to be present. In, you can go to this website right here, uh, mothersunion.org, our story, and it has a lot of information about the economic development, especially in third world countries, um, that the Mother's Union still sponsors to this day. Um, they also sponsor some literacy and education programs. Um, and within the church, they give women a safe space for female spirituality and a forum to discuss their ideas um, and their experience of motherhood. So I wanted to pause here and ask you, um, where have been some of the most impactful women in your lives? What, what direction did they point you in? Oh, Go I'm ahead. Uh, yeah. We had six kids, and she really did that. 
And I would say that's those transcendent moments that God really wants us to see and correlate with his, um, his own fatherhood of us in, in that we, we are, by our very nature, selfish and, and in our own bubble. And um, no one takes on that job more than parents to burst the bubble and say, you know, we need you in the group. So, is there another hand over here? Yeah, my mother has five sons, two daughters. I'm the oldest son. We got to a place where I, all five of the sons had gone through college, and many of them, had, a couple of them, have gotten pretty good jobs. And uh, we're visiting mom on her birthday or some occasion. And uh, we all were standing together with our arms around each other, all five sons. And I said, Mom, look at we've got degrees, we've got good jobs. Are you proud of your sons? And she said, I'm proud of you whenever you trust God. There you go. <laughs> so I think that's also important that um, a lot of the um, attributed sayings um, that go to anonymous are really somehow some of that mother's wisdom that's been passed down from generation to generation. And um, they may not be in scripture, but I think they definitely impact us. Go ahead. <coughs> Strong until now. She's 90. 
She was one of those where even after talking with her for five minutes, you'd be convinced that you knew her for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. She just had that gift, which was great for a missionary, because if you're trying to raise funds. Yep, <laughs> totally. Yeah. And that's a good point, too, because Mary Sumner was a grandmother when she started the Mother's Union. She didn't think she had the tools to run this kind of organization. She backed into it. She was very reluctant. Um, but God gives us the strength, gives us that ability to connect. And she used her um, most basic experiences to become that wisdom, that avenue to God uh, for so many women around the world. Go ahead. What last one? Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. So clear. Yeah. Amen. I'm going to move on to St. Monica now. So the three P's for St. Monica. She was passionate. She consistent prayer and that persistence. She never give up on her family, on her community, on her loved ones. Um, she was able through her love and her, the teachings, she was able to tr transcend society's boundaries, especially around that 300 AD time period. It was very uh, conventional. She was from this backwater, uh, North Africa. So, you know, she didn't have a lot of resources at the start of her life. Poverty and scarcity were a real issue. Um, and she was over to able to come overcome that childish self-interest um, with the gifts that God gave her. Um, so here's um, a couple verses um, from Thessalonians, First Thessalonians: "Pray without ceasing; in everything, give thanks." And then an another quote attributed to her is, "Nothing is far from God." Um, this is from St. Augustine's. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So these are kind of the central themes about St. Monica's life. Um, and actually, I'm not sure if Thessalonians was even part of canon <laughs> at the time period that um, she lived. She um, was the mother to St. Augustine, and St. Augustine went on to become a, a great teacher and a prolific evangelist um, throughout Europe. 
And then his writings kind of um, extended that um, legacy even further. Um, she was an instrument for transforming people. And her patience, her piety, her actions continued and continued. And that enduring faith um, was more of a testimonial uh, for people in that early church. Uh, and it just brought more and more. Um, at that time period, Constantine had just legalized Christianity. Um, he had just stopped putting Christians to death, to the dying, <laughs> burning them, or in the Colosseums to the lions. So it was a it was a time of a lot of change. And although she came from a, a Christian Berber family, she had a lot of. Um, they were still meeting in houses and and old um, buildings. Um, the hierarchy of the church hadn't been established. Um, there were um, a lot of churches and bishops, uh, but they weren't um, organized under that Roman Catholic uh, structure yet. Um, she was born in 1332 AD in North Africa uh, in Tagaste. And Tagaste is near Carthage, um, not too far. She was remarkably obedient and steadfast, even in her youth, to her parents. Um, she persistently, throughout her life, consoled other women and advised them um, on family and love and relationships. Um, she was likely illiterate in her youth because her family was so poor, and um, she had to portion out or ration the food uh, for her family. Uh, and that was a big job, uh, especially in North Africa with, on the edge of the desert um, at that time period. So you can see this is where we are. This is Sicily here. And this is Tagaste, where she lived. And Hippo, where um, St. Augustine let, later became the bishop. And again, this is another anonymous quote that I attribute <laughs> to St. Monica. You never know who needs you. Got good faith and energy is contagious. Okay, so she was married to uh, Patricius, who was a citizen of Tagaste. He was a minor administrator when they were married and about twice her age. Um, he was pagan. He worshipped the Roman gods still, and um, a lot of theologians have questioned why would her parents marry her off to this Roman. But she always had faith that she was there for a reason, that she didn't know what that was. She would continue to pray to see what God had in store, what that plan was. Um, she had a lot of public humiliation because he was adulterous and he liked to drink a lot of wine, had a fiery temper. Um, 
it clashed with her Christian lifestyle. She frequently would take um, a lot of the gourmet food and wine and give it away to the sick and the peasants in the street. Uh, so her mother-in-law was not a big fan of Monica and would frequently complain to her son, why is she giving away all the gourmet wine? You know, what, what is she doing? You know, we need this for entertaining dignitaries. And uh, when Monica was questioned on this, she would say, the Lord will bless us and keep us all our days. And it, it was nearly impossible to argue with her, but she never um, argued back. The, the secondary role, uh, again, that very um, early church was not really as equals. And she continued to pray, and, but continued to also uh, display acts of faith. And she used this time to really learn and become literate. Because for the first time, she had access to scribes. Um, she always attended church, but the patriarchal church had um, kind of doled out the sections of Old Testament and uh, scripture. Unless you were a holy man, you didn't have access to that. Um, once she married uh, Patricius, she had access. And she um, continued to learn um, during that time period. Um, she prayed, prayed, and prayed for her mother-in-law and for her husband. And about um, five years before her mother-in-law's passing, she converted to Christianity. Mm. About a year, I'm sorry, let's change that. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry, about a, about a year into, um, before his passing, before Patricius died, um, he also converted to um, Christianity. And at that time period, Augustine was not Christian at all. She had three children, Augustine, Navigus, and Perpetua, Perpetua, sorry. Um, and when Augustine fell ill as an infant, she wanted to have him baptized into the Christian faith. And uh, Patricius said, okay. And then as soon as the son got better, he said, no, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. So that shaming and disapproval of her lifestyle required a lot of patience, a lot of vigilance for her. And what she channeled it into was her community, her children, uh, the other women in Tagaste. And they would actually come to her because your husband is difficult, atrocious, um, has a reputation, you know. And she would say, again, God put me here for a reason. Um, I have faith that I will learn something from this experience and that it will come to his goals, to God's um, ultimate rewards in the end. Um, so as Augustine 
as growing up. Um, he's very clever. He also loves to read and question why. Um, I, does anybody know any kids like that? <laughs> yeah. Um, he did take after his father's fiery ten temperament. He was very impetuous and, you know, didn't want to do the chores and all work and no play, right? But again, another uh, scripture, whatever hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Uh, that's what she put herself into. All of her efforts went into the children making a, a more harmonious household and um, prayer. Um, when Augustine was 17 and Patricius died, he passed away, um, he was studying rhetoric in Carthage, rhetoric and philosophy. And he had um, run in with a different crowd and he started to believe in Manchian, which is kind of a, a yin-yang philosophy, but they had merged it with Christianity. Um, but they believed in two gods, one of good and one of evil. Um, she was so distraught and passionate about this that she had forbade him to come to her table or sleep in the household while he believed such heresy. And she wrote to him daily while he was in Carthage. You know, I don't know if the scribes were working overtime, but they definitely um, earned their money um, because she would um, pray and um, write to him about her relationship and the fulfillment that she found um, in, in serving God. Um, so about three or four years went by of this while, while Augustine is yucking it up in Carthage and running with the wild crowd. Um, she had a, a dream where an angel came to her and said, do not worry. Your son will become a shepherd of men and Christendom, but you must remain, remain vigilant in your belief in him. Mm. And this gave her a lot of peace, but didn't stop her from crying a lot. I think the um, telenovelas, she could give them a run for their money. Um, okay. So I'll skip to the end then. Um, the, for several years, he ran with that rough crowd. And this is one of the quotes from Augustine. Give me chastity and continence, but not yet. <laughs> and this was, again, written many years later in Confessions. Um, and she uh, went to the bishop of uh, Carthage and said, oh, please intercede. Please talk to my son. And the bishop of Carthage said, oh, no, I, I had my dabblings with Manchian, too. It's just a phase. He'll, go, he'll grow out of it, you know. Uh, <laughs> 
she didn't really grow out of it right away. <laughs> you know, he was 29 years old when he finally traveled from Carthage to Rome. And he wanted to uh, teach rhetoric in Rome um, as a professor. And she didn't want him to go. He asked, um, well, you know, I'm just going to go on a weekend cruise with my friends, and uh, we'll see you later. And then took off for Rome without her. So she was very hurt, and at this point she had very limited resources. Uh, but she was determined, and she went after him. She followed him, uh, selling her few remaining professions. And then when she got to Rome, he was already gone. He went to Milan. So again, she set out in search of him. That's where um, St. Augustine met St. Ambrose. And St. Ambrose was already a bishop in Milan. And he was a great speaker. As opposed to me, they call him the honey-tongue doctor. And so this had a huge impact on Augustine and seemed to transform him even more. And she joined him in St. Ambrose's parish and was then um, happy to see that Augustine was baptized by St. Ambrose in 387. So she became a very active member in that parish, in that church. And um, they didn't have holy orders for women. They didn't have any nuns at that time period. But she was one of the first archetypes that they did base the, the orders, the Catholic orders, on her. So I'm sorry if there's more, but that's all we got time for. It's an ideal session for today. Monica, thank you so much. All right.